modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harbridge University. Oh, good morning. Mm, hello. So I'm guessing it's considerably more difficult to get here if you're flying commercial. Haha, you're funny. Everyone who's attending this event flies private. I thought this was an academic conference that you organized. Maybe think of it more as a meeting of great minds. Where... Maybe I shouldn't care, but where are we exactly? I mean, if I'd known we were going tropical, I'd have brought my swim trunks. Ha! Micronesia, a tiny island 3,000 kilometers northeast of Australia. It seems like there's a lot of construction going on for a tiny island in Micronesia. Yeah, that's because we can't wait to build the future. Wait a sec. Are you saying that this Welcome is... Welcome to New Antara, Professor. You bought an island? Well, not just me. I lead the consortium of investors that came together to purchase it. Luckily, the last buyer pulled out after getting sentenced to prison, and we were just able to scoop it up. I... Hope you got a great deal on it. Mm -hmm. How long ago did construction start? I think about six months. We talked about this on the plane, Gary. Capitalists building utopias don't have the greatest track record. Remember Fordlandia? Mm. Henry Ford built an entire town in the Amazon rainforest to harvest rubber. It's now known as his most embarrassing failure. Who are you calling a capitalist? Oh, okay. What do the bazillionaires go for these days? Oligarchs? Plutocrats? Anti-disestablishmentarianists? No, that last one's not a real word. Well, if you can afford an island, you can probably pay for it to become a word. True. Look, we're gonna be late. Let's head over to the presentation room. It's just past the residential area. Follow me. Hey, I flew in an lectern especially for you. You're welcome. Where will everyone sit? On the other side of that two-way mirror. Okay. Not to, like, brag or anything, but I usually mm. pack the room with at least 75 to 80 people. Oh, it isn't that kind of conference, Professor. Yeah. How many people will be on the other side of that mirror? Five. Including you? Including me. But the speaker fee... Is very generous, I know. Let's just say your singular point of view is very valuable to the audience we've gathered here. Okay. Um, I prepared something last night, but for such a small group, maybe we should go more interactive? There are mics and speakers on both sides. They'll be able to ask questions. Why don't you start with the lecture, but we'll see where the conversation takes us. Hmm? All right, everyone's situated. I'll be back when you're done. Uh, okay. Sure. Uh, hello? I wish I could see you mysterious people behind that mirror, but, uh... You know, as the stones say, you can't always get what you want. Um, okay. Well, I wrote down some thoughts for this, so... Let's go through them, and then... You know, if you have questions, stop me at any time. Conspiracy theories. Uh, 
Conspiracy theories have long captured the human imagination. They shape the narrative of historical events and offer alternative explanations for the perplexing occurrences that we can't initially explain to ourselves. Why does our species, no matter from what time period or geographical location, construct and choose to believe in outlandish and sometimes scientifically disproven or debunked theories? The answers seem to have their roots both in biology and psychology. Humans are wired to detect patterns, right? Even in random information. Conspiracy theories often provide a narrative that connects seemingly unrelated events appealing to our pattern recognition instincts, right? So this is important. We're always looking for patterns. And sometimes we see them where they are not. Individuals tend to favor information that confirms their existing beliefs as well, right? So bias confirmation. We see patterns that confirm what we already thought. Conspiracy theories provide a framework for interpreting events that aligns with these preconceived notions, especially in turbulent times. Individuals that are faced with existential threats may turn to conspiracy theories as a coping mechanism, offering a way to make sense of all the fear and uncertainty that certain contexts can, can kind of impose on, on human life. I find it interesting that some of today's most prevalent conspiracy theories recycle from conspiracy theories of the past, although each era introduces its own unique elements and contexts, right? So, for example, the QAnon movement uh, perpetuates the conspiracy that elites drink the blood of children, which has a long history rooted in anti-Jewish propaganda all the way back to the Middle Ages. The first case of blood libel, so it's called, uh, was that of William of Norwich in 1144. That's how old this idea is. A young boy uh, was discovered stabbed to death in the woods, and the Jews of Norwich were charged with the crime of killing a Christian child in order to use his blood in Jewish rituals. In the early 20th century, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion appeared in Russia. The author of the work was unclear, but it is widely accepted that it was a fabrication created by the Russian secret police, perhaps to deflect public discontent onto a supposed Jewish conspiracy. Um, that spurious document claims to be the minutes of a secret meeting of Jewish leaders outlining their alleged plan for world domination and detailing a sinister plot to control governments, economies, and the media. Prior to this meeting, I thought that that was the most ridiculous claim I'd ever heard, but <laughs> in the context of what's going on right now, I don't know. Maybe secret meetings are more popular than I thought. Anyway, uh, during the Nazi era in Germany, these horrendous anti-Semitic conspiracy theories reached a horrifying climax with the genocide of six million Jews during the Holocaust. Nazi propaganda, fueled by pseudo-scientific and conspiratorial beliefs, 
demonize Jews as part of a global conspiracy to manipulate world events. The pen might be mightier than the sword, but it takes a dark turn when it comes to the dissemination of harmful stereotypes that can create real threat and target individuals and communities, right? This anti-Semitism continues into this day, and there's been a dramatic rise, almost 400% increase of hate crimes against the Jewish people following the October 7th Hamas massacre. So what I'm saying here is that we can trace this particular conspiracy theory of elite shrinking blood back to an anti-Semitic trope that's been around since over a thousand years, and it's just been reused to target and retarget different communities with real, actual, physical results that have implications that are, you know, life and death stakes. It seems like in the modern era, new conspiracies are birthed by the hour, but there's countless conspiracy theories throughout history. For instance, in 64 CE, the Great Fire of Rome burned for days and devastated a significant portion of the city, and rumors ran rampant that Nero, seeking to clear space for new architectural projects, deliberately ordered the burning of the city. In trying to deflect blame away from himself, Nero countered with his own conspiracy theory, blaming a relatively unpopular and marginalized group in Rome at the time, the Christians. Uh, another one, the Knights Templar. This conspiracy theory posits that King Philip IV of France, driven by financial debt and greed, conspired with Pope Clement V to eliminate the powerful and wealthy order of the Knights Templar. Uh, allegedly, in 1307, Philip orchestrated the simultaneous arrest of many Templars, accusing them of heresy and other charges. Facing torture during interrogations, Templars reportedly confessed to a whole bunch of terrible misdeeds and heretical acts. Pope Clement, influenced by Philip, collaborated in the suppression of the order, leading to the official dissolution of the Knights Templar in 1312 and the confiscation of all their riches. The theory suggests that the charges and uh, all of this was completely fabricated just as a pretext to seize the Templars' incredible wealth. <clears throat> and another, okay, the affair of the poisons. This was a scandal that unfolded in 17th century France, a conspiracy to poison King Louis XIV. It involved allegations of witchcraft and poisoning and murder within the French court and society. The scandal began when authorities uncovered a network of individuals, including fortune tellers and poisoners, who were accused of selling various toxic substances. The accused were believed to have provided poisons to people seeking to eliminate rivals or enemies. The scandal implicated several members of the aristocracy and even reached the royal court, leading to arrests, trials, and quite a few executions. 
The Affair of the Poisons revealed the darker and more clandestine aspects of court life during this period, and it had significant consequences, including strengthening royal control and like the further entrenchment of absolutism in France. So conspiracy theories and doomsday predictions too, both accomplish two things as I see it. One, they, they sort of satisfy this instinct to uh, recognize patterns in what might be chaotic and really non-causally related information. They also promote fear um, or reinforce a sense of powerlessness. It makes sense that they often arise during periods of social, political, or environmental upheaval, right, like resource scarcity, because they provide a narrative during those uncertain times that uh, creates a sort of centering thread. Um, now, that thread may be based on absolute bunk. It may be loosely based on factual information that you can point to, but is not causally related. And always it runs the risk of having real-world effects in terms of how the public treats other members of the community. So, okay, knowing this, what can we glean about the evidence at Antera about its destruction? For this, we have to go back to the end of the Second Empire. The question is, how does a civilization that appears to be probably the closest that humanity has ever come to a utopia um, collectively decide to completely upend their societal structure? One theory revolves around the appearance of what are called the Tall Ones. There are these metal disks um, that were recovered from the dive site that are thought to be engraved with census records. And over decades, the population of tall ones starts to increase among the native Antarans. The wealth and relative safety of Antara must have been a draw for any outside peoples, but it's unclear why the Antarans allowed an outside tribe to settle within their walls. During this time period, there's a marked shift in the styles of pottery used. In other societies, this often reflects changes in cooking practices and food preparation and could be evidence of a shift in available food resources due to famine or drought. So that could explain the rise of the graffiti. Um, as you know, there's graffiti found dated to around that time period that describes the tall ones in extremely antagonistic terms, such as slurs like white shadow and long ape. Um, one could imagine that a new population, one that hasn't integrated into this new city, Antara, Dark City, could be the scapegoat. Uh, in an uncertain time where food has normally been abundant and is now scarce. So, you know, all of this is conjecture, but as we've described, the two targets of conspiracy theories tend to be either those in power or a marginalized group. Here we have a marginalized group, and we have evidence of 
public denigration of that marginalized group. This is quite fascinating, but I was uh, hoping to be able to ask you a related question. Please, go ahead. Given what happened to Antara, do you think annihilation could be safe in the case of complete civilizational collapse? Uh, well, that's not exactly my locus of expertise, but I can tell you I've done some light research on climate havens, and those who are in the know are building bunkers in places like New Zealand, Alaska, and Vermont. Um, you have to balance the remoteness of your location, safeguards against marauders, right, uh, against the ease of access to the resources you need to become self-sustaining. Hello, Professor. I've been following your work for quite some time. My question for you is, should I delete my social media posts that question the viability of GAI? If AI takes over, could it be dangerous if it knows what we think about it? I would think that if AI is that advanced, it'll be able to figure out how you feel by the omission. What's the best way to ensure that the security we've contracted with in the case of a final event won't turn against us? You've already contracted with security personnel for a doomsday scenario? An ex-Navy SEAL team on my payroll would provide protection for as long as necessary, but how do I keep them from gaining the upper hand over me and my family? I... I'm sure that I have no idea. I, I was thinking of an addendum to their contract that they must consent to shock callers. Or perhaps the best way to engender loyalty is to start investing in goodwill. Now, like pay for their kids' private school. Maybe get to know them as a people. That's definitely not going to work. <clears throat> Look, you can't apply the exit strategy of a Silicon Valley startup to civilization itself. Why not? Well, from what I can tell, all the strategies you're talking about are promoting individual survival over community. I have a good friend who grew up during the Civil War in Bosnia. He spent a year in Sarajevo after the proverbial shit hit the fan, right? Complete breakdown of government, no electricity, no water. He would wake up and spend the day gathering or trading for scarce resources, water, fuel, food, and then wake up and do it all over again. Do you, do you want to know what he told me? That we need more guns? Okay, well, he did, he did say that guns were essential. Um, surprisingly, though, he said the shittier and more common the gun, the better. A gun that you can't find ammo for is useless. The first houses to be breached were the ones with security and defenses, because that indicated that there was something inside worth protecting. So, you know, don't wear your shiny new flak jacket to the apocalypse. What he told me that I found so interesting and that I think you guys need to hear, he said, anyone who was alone had almost no chance of survival. It's only the larger groups who banded together that were able to take care of one another as well as take turns on watch shifts and protecting their resources. All the loners were robbed, starved, or killed. Well, 
This has been enlightening. I certainly learned a lot and appreciate you coming all this way to speak with us. Chris? Raquel? Ra Raquel, are you back there? P Professor, no, d d don't turn off the lights. I can see you, motherfuckers. Modes of thought in Interran literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family Trust. With an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf at the Door Studios. For more information and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Hey, we're the Looters. Hey, what's up? Looters is a sci-fi western actual play podcast using the Stars Without Number system. We're a group of friends getting into trouble all over the universe. So come with us if you're into adventure. A rocket flies out of one of these ships far behind you and crashes into the wall and blows up. There's rockets? It's Mario Kart. Crazy. Intrigue. Can I hack into the body and maybe see if they have like a memory data bank in their brain or some shit like that that I can access? Metal, literally. <laughs> Devastating physical injury. <laughs> Just take cover. Uh, okay. <laughs> She's a good pilot, everyone. She's very good. And friendship. Aww. New episodes of Looters out every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.